You didn't tell me about this. That's all right. Just, just rock to it. Hey, y'all. Welcome to Cuss Politics. Thank you for joining us on the Fight Laugh Feast Co- Network. If you <laughs> want to be in a conversation with us, email us at contact at fightlabfeast.com. We have been working hard every day for you. It's a jam. Working for you. Now you can work for us and join oh, the club. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah, how you like all that? Right. Just give them We're job working for offers. you. You can work for us. Join the club. You get a free T-shirt, all sorts of stuff in the club portal. And, all, and of course, you get uh, special platinum members uh, when they sign up. Angels get their wings in heaven, and you don't oh. want to leave any angels wingless Without in heaven. wings, yeah. No. I, I did not approve that That's all. all. Yeah. I, he I just did, went Catholic I, I, something I, I on that. I, I don't even know if that's Catholic. Nah, <laughs> what is that? <laughs> it's worse than Mormon. Um, <laughs> all right. With, with us on the line right now, we got Mr. Jonathan Jack. Oh, man, I'm going to black shit. I'm gonna- Jakubowski. No. <laughs> Jakubowski. I, I did it. Uh, he's a Christian husband, father, author, business leader, and millennial. He played football at Bowling Green State University and received his master's degree in public policy from Georgetown University for his day job. Jonathan leads an innovative and award-winning startup called Smart Solve. Oh. He lives in Ohio with his wife and four kids where he serves as executive committee chairman of the Wood County Republican Party and sits on the Wood County Board of Elections, and the reason we got him on for today is he is the author of a brand new book called Bellwether Blues, A Conservative Awakening of the Millennial Soul. Jonathan, thanks so much for being on Cross Politic. Thank you, guys. It's such an honor to be here. So um, talk to us, first of all, about millennials. What is a millennial? Why do millennials matter? Well, the millennial has been defined many different ways, and there's a ton of stereotypes out there that relate to what a millennial is. But if you look at the research, uh, most of the breakdowns for how a millennial is defined begin with graduating uh, by the year or after the year 2000 or having been born um, late enough to remember early enough, sorry, to remember 9-11. So you're looking at 1980 to 1996. That's roughly how you define the millennial generation by birth year. The reason it's important is it's the largest electoral demographic in America. Hmm. And while most stereotypes say that they don't go out to vote in 2018, they came out in record numbers. Um, you say in the top of your book, Awakening the Millennial Soul. I, I'm actually surprised. I didn't know that, that we had souls. <laughs> so this is, this is new. Um, you know, <laughs> but one of the things that uh, was really interesting right at the beginning of the book, I've always made left and liberalism the same. And you make a separation between leftism and liberalism, and you do it by talking about Tom the Baker. Could you kind of walk through that for us? Sure, absolutely. There's been a huge shift, and I I think we all know them. There's a lot of people we know that uh, have identified as Democrats but are feeling like their party has left them. And millennials feel the same way. Uh, They they feel this shift towards leftism uh, in in a significant manner, and there's movements that have been subsequently created, like hashtag walk away where you have hundreds of thousands of people who are walking away from the left. And the example that you referred to in the book with uh, Tom the Baker is a classical liberal would champion the freedom of Tom the Baker. Uh, If Tom the Baker were forced, for example, to bake a cake uh, by the government, he he was somebody came in, let's say it was a Nazi and wanted him to bake a cake for the Nazi party. And Tom were to refuse that classical liberals would come rushing to his defense and say, no, you, he does not have to bake the cake. We're defending his First yeah. Amendment <laughs> rights in spite of the Constitution. Right. Now, what's happened since then is a shift all the way to the left, 
Well, now Tom the baker is baking a cake and walks in a gay couple and says, hey, we want you to bake a cake for our wedding. Tom refuses to bake that cake on the basis of his convictions. And now rather than defending Tom, they attack him, trying to destroy his income and his business. So when you think of a classical liberal, who are you pointing to? Who would be a representative of that particular party? A unicorn? Uh, Yeah, because I don't – I mean when you you say this, I was trying to figure out, I don't know anybody that I can think of. I mean it's definitely not Bill Clinton. (laughs) Like who would you point to? (laughs) Well, I think we can go back uh, to the Blue Dog Democrats. Uh, In Uh. recent history, think about the Blue Dogs who who were very much pro-life. They may have had uh, a difference of opinion on tax rates and welfare and – uh, the, the fiscal measures of government, but very much embracing of First Amendment freedoms. And, and there's actually six things that I delineate as differences between uh, leftists and classic liberals. I think the classic liberal um, ideology comes goes back to Thomas Jefferson and James Madison. Um, a lot of that thought was in the foundation of the framing of our government and the institutions that surrounded it. But the six things that I recognize or acknowledge in the book are race, free enterprise, national sovereignty, the view of America, free speech, and Western civilization. So I was, even as you're, you, you're making fun of Bill Clinton there, so yeah. you go Knox, but I mean, remember Bill Clinton signed the Dova. Defense of Marriage yeah. Act. Yeah. Right. He would have got stoned probably this, yeah, in this oh, era. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, mean, it, I mean, that just is a little bit of a snapshot of the shift that's happened. I think the, 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 this divergence that's happened between a classical liberal yeah. Democrat and, yeah. and leftism. Yeah, that's certainly. Right. So, um, Talk to us a little bit about – so you're, one of the things that's unique about your book is that it's full of stories. Yeah. Um, uh, s- seven, in fact, I think. Um, and what, why, um, um, why tell stories in the middle of a book about politics? Why not use facts? <laughs> well, we try to use facts as the foundation, but those books get pretty boring pretty quickly. <laughs> um, I think I'm, I'm a big fan of, of novels, and I, we all know this inherently. Stories are powerful. The stories have the ability to persuade, and nobody can refute your testimony. Revelations talks about that, right? It says, you shall defeat him by the blood of the lamb and the word of your testimony. Mm. So in this book, I really sought to try to thread the needle by bringing alive the people that, that I've seen in this county, my county, which is a swing county in a swing state, where I'm seeing this shift in this movement and what caused the millennials in my book to, to make the greater leap of not just leaving the left, but actually embracing principles of conservatism was tied deeply into their stories. And it was the best way to tell it. So one of the stories that really caught my attention, and I just want you to briefly kind of go through this. I, th- I think there's a wonderful person introduced to our audience is Aaron Lawrence. Could you just kind of talk briefly about his story and why you thought he was somebody to even start out with? Yeah. Let, quick testimony to his story. Actually, I was on an airplane coming back from business trip and was finishing the edits to the editor and his edits to my edits, which is a bunch of editing, right? Yeah. And as I'm finishing writing his story, I'm reflecting upon the influence of his father and his brother. And just thinking about how much of an honor it will be for people to read about his father and how influential he was. Mm. Because Aaron grew up in inner city Cleveland. Uh, his extended family was on welfare. Uh, some of them depended upon drugs, engaged in crime. But his father established a legacy. Um, and that legacy remains. So I'm, I'm on this plane. I'll, I'll get back to the story in a moment. You just got to hear this. Yeah. As, I, as I get off the plane, I get a text. And that text uh, came from my wife saying that Aaron's father had passed. Mm. He had just died um, right as I was getting off of the airplane. Wow. And I was, I was blown away by it because his, the testimony of this man and the story now that hopefully thousands will get to read about. 
yeah. uh, is something that re refers to how intricately involved he was in Aaron's life and his legacy. Yeah. So I was really honored to have a small hand in, in helping them extend his story to others. Yeah. And his, his father was pivotal because, um, you know, in a, in a place in an era where a lot of uh, Aaron's friends were without fathers, they didn't have father figures in their lives. They, they didn't have a dad at home. Uh, that was the primary difference that uh, really directed Aaron down the right path, uh, down a path of, of truth and hope and understanding uh, what it means to become a man himself. And one of the principles of Aaron's father's life uh, was that he would, he would never accept welfare. He would refuse it. He wanted to make sure that he provided for his family, and he saw the dangerous effects of becoming dependent upon it. So Aaron goes to college, um, he leaves the home, ends up becoming one of the first in his family uh, to be able to attend college and uh, ends up finding a, a lady, they get married. Um, and uh, during their marriage, early, in the early years of the marriage, um, Aaron was really challenged by uh, getting a job. He came out into an economy that had just experienced the Great Recession and was really challenged by that. And it was at this moment that he had a, a decision to make. Uh, the decision was, will, will I accept just dependency upon the government dole or will I find a way to pursue income and create a job and develop a resume? And uh, he ends up choosing the latter. And in the process of that, he begins to think differently about the way he votes. In 2008, mm -hmm. uh, as a, a man of color, he said it was just accepted. You didn't even think about it. It was voting for Barack Obama. It was just a, not yeah. even a question to consider. But in this evolution of thought uh, towards uh, engaging the workforce and raising a family. And most importantly, there was an awakening of faith mm. in his life. Mm. It changed his perspective and caused him to change his vote. Mm. Wow. There's, there's, wow. That was, it was, the, he's skimming the story. It was beautiful. Yeah. It was really beautiful. One of the things that I caught on really quick to something that you were doing was that, you know, you would usually, you talk about the topics. You talk about fatherlessness. And this is when the main – you start off the stories with fatherlessness and how it hurts our economy, yeah. how it hurts our culture, and how it hurts our people. And, but you also attach a face to this, to this whole topic. It's yeah. not just the principles. I think that's what you were getting at when you talk about – look, we talk about facts, but then these facts actually are t connected to real people and real issues, and it matters. Mm. And so you do this constantly. It didn't take long before I started realizing another pattern in your book, which was somebody grows up in a – kind of mediocre Christian family and then as they go out they connect themselves to other Christians who are living strong Christian lives and then through that process of culture community and relationship they become transformed and then their whole political positions and, and persuasions change and and so that was really I just I just got to give you that compliment it was really masterful and I, I just want to say man I, I it made the book just pace so fast mm. when reading it so I just want to say thank you for doing that it, it really makes sense though from a Christian perspective and probably something that I mean this is the, the, this is a testimony against us in many ways and that yeah. Christians haven't seen the necessity of putting truth together with um, people yes um, I mean the the incarnation. Is the yeah. is is the declaration that God became flesh for us? So it's yeah. not just it's not just the love of God. It's not just the truth of God. But love became flesh. Yes, truth right. became flesh. They preach that man. righteousness became yeah. flesh in preach, Jesus. Preach yeah. And and that is in the process of actually happening. Then as God redeems individuals, human beings, now that same love of Christ by the Holy Spirit is taking residence in real people. Yeah. And so it it makes absolute sense that that would be persuasive yeah. uh, since that's what the gospel is. <laughs>
That's how God functions with us. Hey, I don't know if you're ready to get there yet, uh, Jonathan, but why uh, – why, we're already kind of talking about, a little, about this a little bit. But why are conservatives um, so bad at communicating their their message? We've kind of talked – we've yeah. kicked this around on our show over yeah, the last I couple never years. Saw, I was like, Aaron, I never saw a conservative or Republican ever show up in my community neighborhood or talk about why they had better positions. You know, why, why is it that we're so bad at this? I think there's a few reasons, and I really try to wrestle with that and at the end of the book. Um, as yeah. we go through the stories, first I open the book by talking about the the shift from uh, classical liberalism to leftism. And then I talk about the county that I live in and why it's a special and unique county and why we should pay attention to it uh, within the, the, the millennial demographic being strong in my county. And then I go into those stories and then close the book with a critique of modern methods of conservative persuasion. Mm. And the first answer is is the why. I don't think conservatives know why. They're conservative. Mm. Why they vote? I don't think they understand the deeper reason and the foundation for that. In many cases, in my story, which I include in the book, at least a small snippet of it, is when I went to graduate school, I had a strong conviction for why I believed in Jesus. Yep. I had had conversations. I had read apologetics was a, a part of my growing up. Um, so I had a strong conviction for why. And, and there were, weren't many people that had the ability to uh, to persuade me otherwise. In fact, I was in graduate school. I remember I had a number of people that I was able to share the gospel with in a, in a deep manner. But when it came to uh, politics and political philosophy, studying public policy especially, a lot of these conversations arose, and this was right at the height of uh, President Obama's ascendancy in 2008. Yeah. And I remember my colleagues in graduate school were so effective and persuasive at their arguments that I said, I don't even know what I believe. I, I really need to go back. And I voted Republican for my entire life just because I grew up in, in a great family. But I don't know if I can carry these convictions forward. Mm. So it took me about five years after graduate school of getting deep into the roots of, of what America is, um, what what the biblical call is for truth, where truth stands. Neither political party has a monopoly on truth, by the way. I think we all know that. Yeah. Uh, but I think when uh, Republicans have been at their best, when the philosophy of conservatism has thrived the most, it is when it is based upon eternal principles, not politicians or personalities. Mm. And those principles mm. are what I try to outline in the book as I communicate an effective and persuasive why. That's the first thing I think conservatives must unlock if they're going to be persuasive to the millennial generation. You have a part in your book that made me stop and think about what you were saying. It was really good. You, you were on a tour, I think, through a history tour, and you went through Harriet Tubman's. Uh, where was that at? Yeah. In Philadelphia. In Philadelphia. Yeah. Okay. And you said, um, I, I don't want to mess this quote up because it was so good. You said that the transition for pro-choice to pro-life is the underground railroad for the millennial mind moving from left to right. Ooh. Can you walk through yeah. that? I love that. It's such a great – what do you mean by that? Yeah, I, I, that was a revelation to me as well as I was visiting this museum, this Museum of the Constitution, and um, having studied all these documents and understanding them deeply, there's certain heroes uh, that come out of the framework. And I think these heroes need to be revisited. Harriet Tubman is one of them. And there's a movie yeah. that I think that just came out about her. Yeah. We, need to, we need to watch her story. And Frederick Douglass is another one. Booker T. Washington. Yep. These are all people. We talk about Chalk Knox, your goal of awakening the black church. I mean, these people are heroes yep. who were, were I, I arguably, Fre Frederick uh, Douglass, I think, was the greatest human being of his time. Mm. Reading his autobiography, I, there's a lot about his life that I think we should seek to emulate. Um, so with Harriet Tubman's story, what, the reason I stated what I stated is, as I believe, as she was fighting for the slaves, bringing them to liberty, she was going down the dirt, dirty, dark roads against enemies that sought her life. And I think of all of the positions in the Republican Party platform, uh, one of them that I am thankful uh, Republicans have embraced is that of life. 
And it's a part of the conservative philosophy. We go back to the inalienable rights in the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they have been endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, and that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Life is the first most fundamental right. And that's what conservatives understand and get. And that's why we must stand for the pro-life argument. And if we do, if we understand why that conviction is so critical, and we can convince and de- declare that persuasively to others, I think we can bring them through to an understanding of truth. It all starts at life. After that, everything becomes uh, much more clear. Mm-hmm. And, and that comes, though, that means we have to win the argument that there's a creator. That's right. Yeah. I mean, you've got, yeah. I mean, that's yeah. one of the, been one of the most insidious things in our culture has just been questioning the fact that there's not even a creator, that we're accidents. Is there yeah. a God? And, right. and if there, because if there is no creator, then, then you're right. Then there's no inalienable rights, yeah. um, mm-hmm. much less life, liberty, or the pursuit of happiness. I'm just glad you didn't pull a Joe Biden when you quoted that. And, <laughs> and, and all that stuff. So you, you say e- eternal principles. And when uh, obviously you're pointing back to your Christian faith when you say eternal principles. Um, but how does, how does that play out? Because most of us believe that there's a separation between church and state and that that God should not be brought into politics. You know, politics is a, a different arena. You know, how does that play out then? Yeah, that's a great question because I don't think any of us on this conversation would believe in a theocracy as the ideal form of government uh, here in America. It depends on how you define theocracy. Yeah. Okay. You, 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 well, I'm going to send you a book. <laughs> <laughs> but go ahead. I can't wait to read it. I, I, eventually, I, I'm, I'm, I'm when Jesus is king. That, that's that's where I want. There's your theocracy. But he you is. got it. You nailed it. But, but he I'm is saying eternity. But for right now, uh, before his coming, uh, before he comes back as the Messiah and as king, um, he not king first, right now. Yeah, he's king right now too. Okay. All right. All right. All right. We'll have to figure that one out. <laughs> that's, that's another show. That's another, that's another show. show. <laughs> Oz Guinness would stand with me on this point. Uh, I was able to interview him. Did Oz Guinness write scripture? (laughs) (laughs) Hold on, Chuck Knox. Oh, okay. My my bad. Let him him finish. Let him finish. Another show. (laughs) And that goes back to Federalist 51 as well, which is, is, I think there's reasons why uh, there's governments that are like Israel was at the Exodus. Uh, There's governments like Iran would be today. Uh, those are governments that are, are theocracies, right? They're, they're, they're tied to um, faith. They're tied to a specific religion. And if you do not believe in that, if you do not believe in that religion, you right. can't be a part of that society. Right. And then there are governments, nations that are uh, absent of God. Uh, think of the Soviet Union. Think sure. of China. Yeah. Uh, you know, think of North Korea, all, all these nations that fight it. And then what makes America so unique is uh, the, the balance of uh, free, the First Amendment, the balance of freedom of faith and freedom of conviction is that we are a nation under God. All right. What that means is we acknowledge that our nation would not have its existence with, with the laws that we have unless God created them, mm-hmm. unless God gave life, unless God gave us these the founding tenets uh, that allow us to function and live in a society. Yeah. However, one does not have to believe in the God who created these laws mm-hmm. to flourish in our society. That's right. As, as long as an individual follows those laws, they don't murder other people. As long as they pursue uh, the, the law-abiding nature that citizens are called upon, they can also flourish in this society. Yeah. But the prerequisite is that we acknowledge that there's a God who brought us these laws. And we can go back to uh, Sir William Blackstone and commentaries in the laws of England. 
uh, way back in 1765 when he talks about, and this is another part of the Declaration of Independence, the laws of nature and of nature's God. Right, so on and so forth. So on and so forth. It's it's okay. We'll take you as an honorary theocrat. Yeah. (laughs) You described everything pretty well. (laughs) We agree with you. So th- awesome. I think this would probably be the good time to talk about the the reservoir. I, I love the way you broke this down, the, the golden triangle of freedom. And mm-hmm. go ahead and just kind of break down what that golden triangle is and how it works. Yeah, so the golden triangle of freedom, uh, this is another Oz Guinness origin um, that I took and then kind of adopted to to the way I was writing the book. Uh, he argues there's there's three fundamental tenets that make America what America should be, and, and that is faith, family, and freedom. And I'm using family as a uh, as a, a term that goes along with virtue. Those two terms go together, and, and I'll explain that. And I think this is one of the, the best ways for uh, conservatives to communicate this message to millennials, by the way. Mm-hmm. If we can understand these three fundamental pillars uh, upon which a nation will flourish, it will give us a more persuasive opportunity to communicate these principles. Mm-hmm. Um, they're all interdependent upon each other, even though they're independent of each other. And so in the book, I talk about reservoirs. Imagine reservoirs that are, are providing water into a house. If one reservoir starts to lose its currency, the amount of water that it has, uh, that's going to impact the other reservoirs because we're going to be pulling from those reservoirs or expecting those to supply. Um, and that makes the situation ultimately untenable as soon as those reservoirs get so depleted that we no longer have them. Mm. Now, let me talk a little bit about the reservoirs and I'll end with faith because I think that's the one that, that we'll all enjoy the most. The first is freedom. You know, as, as Americans, it's in our songs, it's in our anthems, it's in our pledges. It's woven into our DNA. Uh, but really, freedom is only half-baked if we only understand it to be freedom from, or negative freedom. Right. Mm-hmm. True freedom is both freedom from and freedom for. What am I free to do? Yep. I am free to take care of my neighbor. I'm free to ensure that his rights are honored and protected. I'm free to make sure that my children are engaged in understanding and practicing the habits of the heart. So you, you must understand freedom if you're going to be an American as not just libertarian, I'm, I'm free to do whatever I want, no tyranny on my life, but you must also understand your responsibilities and duties as a citizen. Now, freedom is important, but you also have to have virtue. And virtue is tied to family because, as we just talked about with Aaron's story, a father matters. Yeah. We know this. God makes us this way. Having a father and a mother matters significantly in our ability to flourish. So with a family and virtue, there's a lot of quotes that that one could pull looking back to why virtue matters so much. The one that I'll tell you today is from Samuel Adams. The diminution, this is a big word, diminution, diminution, there you go. The diminution of public virtue is usually attended with that of public happiness. And the public liberty will not long survive the total extinction of morals. Mm -hmm. We are a nation of laws and not men. And there's a lot of quotes that surround that. If our nation, all of a sudden, we be, believe that murder was okay and 51% of us said so and might made right, guess what? No longer can we have freedom because then a tyrannical, and look at France is a great example of this. Look at their revolutions and the, the many times that there's tyranny in the streets. And finally, it took a Napoleon Bonaparte to come in, excuse me, and execute justice. <laughs> so that will increase, uh, increase the scope of government, thereby decreasing freedom. But we know this. We cannot have virtue. We can't live lives of righteousness. Our righteousness is as filthy rags, Scripture says, unless we have faith. Mm-hmm. And faith in America is the common bond that really made America what it became. You take out faith, we would not have had a United States of America. 
No Great Awakening, no United States. Right. Mm. George Whitfield made nine missionary journeys from the 1730s onward, up and down from Boston down to Savannah. Yeah. And during those missionary journeys, there would be thousands that would hear him speak live. In fact, Benjamin Franklin was one of his close friends who would help fund some of his orphan work in Georgia. And Ben Franklin estimated that over 40,000 people could hear him speak as clearly as we're speaking right now with yeah. no mic, That's no incredible. system, no aid. Yep. And he would be he would be speaking, and these people would come from all over the countryside as he's coming to speak because he was famous. He was the first famous American before George Washington. Yeah. And all these people would come, and they would hear him speak, and, and they said that they knew revival had hit America. When as he would preach, he would preach the gospel, really simple, that we don't have to go through a mediator between God and man. Jesus Christ paid that price, and he alone. Um, when they would see these coal miners out of coal mines, their, their faces black with soot, because the tears coming down their cheeks, they would start to wash away all that black. They said they knew revival had been <laughs> yep. there. Thousands of people with their that tears coming down their eyes. And this is really, in essence, as soon as people uh, understood that they don't have to go through a mediator to have access to the presence of God except for Christ alone, then they began to think about the king and the kingly estate and whether or not a king is, is the divine right of kings really came into question. And all this started tying to, tying itself together throughout the colonies, which then became states. As they started recognizing, hey, this this king and his tyrannical activity is is running against what we have as individuals. We have rights, and these rights come from God and God alone. Back to one nation under God. Wow! I just so, finished I just finished George George Whitfield's biography by uh, Dalimore. Have you read that? Oh yeah, that's that's a no, that's a powerful story. And man, that'll put some put some warmth in your chest. Yeah. That, that's and you're absolutely right though. I mean, the without the Great Awakening, there's no America. No, not not. And I don't think people get that. I don't think people understand that the the theological uh, underpinnings of uh, yeah. of the American uh, experiment is yeah. is uh, profound. Yeah. Um, but man, that's that's some good stuff right there. Hey, cross politic listeners, you guys can go to bellweatherbook.com forward slash cross politic to get 50% off on the EPUB version of oh. Bellweather Blues. This book comes out, uh, uh, you can pre order March 25th and it comes out May 5th. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah, May 5th. It's going to be widely available, of course, given Amazon's definition of mm. essential, non essential, and books a million. This is Noble. essential. <laughs> I appreciate that, Pastor. I, I, I don't know what they're going to say in terms of stocking the shelves, but you can come to our website, and I do think you can get it at a Bellwether book, but I, I think the, the URL we're, we're commonly putting out there is bellweatherbluesbook.com. Okay. Okay. Bellweatherbluesbook.com forward slash cross politic. Give them that cross politic bump. <laughs> hey, Jonathan, thank you so much, man. I can't recommend this book enough. Go and go get it. It's, it's great. It's phenomenal. If you're single, get married. If you're married, have kids. And if you have kids, go baptize them. Until tomorrow, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Go fight, laugh, and feast. This is Cross Politic. I like what you did with that music. You like, you like that new music?